We better pray together and then we'll open our Bibles. Father in heaven, this morning, we're going to study a lot from your word. There's a lot of scripture in this message. I pray that you'll do the preaching. I pray that you'll make me a communicator, but I pray that you'll do the preaching. And I pray that we will discover truth that we all need. It's truth that leads us into the depths of the relationship that we want with you. So, Father, help us to see this. Help us to understand it. And then help us to do it. Lord, at the the end of this prayer, that really is what we're saying. Just help us to do it. And, Father, you could help by showing us the power in it, as you do all the time. Lord, we're offering this prayer on prayer, on purpose. So please respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Ray mentioned just as we were getting started that we would be looking at the subject of prayer. You might wonder how he knew that. I send out an email every Friday or Saturday to anybody that wants to be on that list. Just kind of a a glimpse of what we're going to be talking about on Sunday mornings. If you're not on that list, when we pass booklets out at the end of the service, be sure and put your email address in there and we'll make sure that you get those. And again, they come out on Fridays and Saturdays. I wish you'd open your Bibles with me, the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to show you two passages of Scripture that are possibly the most pointed passages in all of the New Testament on prayer. The first one comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Jesus. It's the only recorded sermon we have of His in all of the Bible. It's very good. It's very brief. He gets right to the point. In fact, He gets to many points throughout that sermon. One of them happens to be on prayer. I want you to hear what He says. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." Now, Tina and I have stood in the actual place where Jesus delivered that message. It's beautiful. Gorgeous view from the top of this mountain, but what is really striking about it is the way thousands of people could have gathered there to hear the message. There was water down at the base of the mountain. They could have hauled water right up there with them, filled up a a bottle, a canteen, a jug, jar, whatever they wanted, brought that with them and sat down at the feet of the master as he taught had to have been spectacular to see all these people present to hear Jesus preach that message. Among the thousands that were there, the 12 disciples were there. They were present to hear the exact same teaching that you just heard and the exact same teaching that all of these other folks had the opportunity to absorb. They were able to pick up what Jesus was putting down. They were able to grab hold of everything that he was trying to drive home. But for some strange reason, unbeknownst to us, After they left that mountain, they forgot what Jesus had said. 
Now, maybe that's happened for you before. You've heard a, a message and you thought, gosh, that was a great message. And, and then as a little bit of time goes by, you forget what the preacher had to say. I know that hasn't happened recently for you, but, but maybe that's happened for you in the past. You've heard great preaching and then the further you get away from it, you lose hold of what the preacher was trying, trying to drive home. Happened to the apostles. They wrestled with it. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke and I'll show you why I believe that. Luke chapter 11. There are a lot of people that have taught this passage as a mirrored passage to what we just read from Matthew chapter 6. They would believe that it is Luke's account that follows directly Matthew's account. It's just Luke sharing the same things that Matthew shared. It's not, and you'll understand just as we get started. Luke 11 verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now see the difference? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was preaching a message. Luke chapter 11, Jesus is just praying. In Matthew chapter 6, the apostles, the disciples were there to hear what he had to say. Now they're watching him. It's entirely possible that the disciples, particularly this one disciple, was a visual learner. There are a lot of people that are like that. Some people can read and instantly understand what they have read. Their comprehension is just through the roof. Other people struggle with that, but if they hear it audibly, they can soak in everything they just heard. That's how they learn. And there are other people that are visual learners. Maybe this disciple was a visual learner. He had heard Jesus preach on the concept of prayer, but it didn't make sense to him. But now that he was seeing Jesus, something was different particularly if he had come from a Jewish background where all he had ever witnessed were the Pharisees standing on the street corners, beating their chest and pounding the gates of heaven with words. Nobody could understand what they were praying for and typically they would have never experienced any success from it. All they would have seen was somebody that was just praying. And so now he sees Jesus quietly offering something before the Lord. And when he's done, he says, Lord, teach us to do that. Teach us to do what you just did. He saw it. And now he's understanding it. So listen to what Jesus says. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, does that sound familiar? Sounds like the exact words that he shared when he was standing on the mountain preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He just went back over the same things that he had already taught them. He gave them the same pattern for prayer. So it was all registering now, but they had seen it. Then he goes a little further. Verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. Door's already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now that's great teaching. 
comes right out of Jesus' mouth, goes right to the disciples after they saw him praying and they wanted to learn how to do what he was doing. Jesus just explained all of it. Not only did he give them a pattern for prayer that follows the Lord's Prayer from the Sermon on the Mount, but he also drove home four other things. If you were listening, you would have seen them. The first one is this, keep your prayers simple. Remember, he's teaching them how to pray. Keep your prayers simple. Make them specific. That's number two. You know one of the biggest problems that people have in prayer is they don't ever ask God for anything. They pray all the time, but they never ask God for anything. The reason they won't is they're afraid he'll say no. So by never asking God for anything, God can never let them down. God can never disappoint them. Yet Jesus would teach, be specific. You ask for specific things. Then the third thing that he taught them was to be persistent. You pray a certain direction until God changes that direction. You stay the course until the course gets changed. So keep it simple, be specific, and be persistent. But then this fourth one, this is really important. Remember that prayer is a part of a relationship. It isn't prayer that works. It's the relationship that works. It isn't prayer that works. It's God that works. A lot of times we think to ourselves, if I just memorize a rote prayer and I say it over and over and over again, no matter what I am looking for from God, no matter what I'm asking of God, if I just say the same prayer repeatedly, God's going to respond to my needs. Well, that's not how it works. This pattern that Jesus just laid out for us is how it works because it's relational. Prayer is relational. You could say the same words over and over and over again and experience the exact same effect over and over and over again, which is nothing, because you're not speaking into the relationship. If you want prayer to work, you have to pray into the relationship. Sadly, there are a lot of people that sit in churches all across the world today that would say that they believe in God, but not in prayer. There's reasons for that. Maybe they have prayed and God hasn't responded the way they thought he should. Maybe they've never learned how to pray, so they've never discovered the power of it. Maybe they don't have a relationship with God that sets up communication between two people that know each other. There are a lot of reasons for it, but the Bible would teach us that we can believe in it, that we should believe in it, and we should practice it. I want to use the remainder of our time today to actually show you those things. Let's start in the book of James. If you would, turn towards the the back of the New Testament and find that book. James chapter 5, verse 16. This one little verse will set up the why question that we all have to start with, meaning this. When we come up against something like prayer, particularly something like prayer, it is natural for us to ask the question, why? Why should I pray? Particularly if, as Jesus has said throughout the New Testament, God already knows what we're going to ask for. Why is it that I need to pray? That's a good question. For a lot of people, they never feel right asking it. Well, you can feel right asking it. For some people, they feel guilty even thinking it. Throw all that guilt away and ask the question, why should I pray? Because the Bible will answer it, and it will answer it very specifically. James chapter 5, verse 16. Here we go. James writes, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now listen to the last part of this. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. When we pray, there's power in it. 
Now that comes through this relationship that we have with God. Notice that the Bible doesn't say that the prayer or that prayer is powerful and effective. It teaches that the prayer of a righteous man or woman, some translations of the Bible say a right, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. You can read it any way you want, man, woman, person. Prayer is powerful and effective when it is offered from a righteous person. A righteous person is somebody that is in right standing with God. That's the relationship. When the relationship is right, then prayer is powerful and effective. And it accomplishes all kinds of different things. Now, this is where it gets a little bit sticky. And there can be some serious wrestling matches over this issue, theological wrestling matches. There are a group of people called the Calvinist that believe in a thing called predestination. Predestination teaches that no matter what you do, no matter how you pray, no matter what you think, the course of your life is already set. It is predestined. Everything has been predestined. Extreme Calvinists would teach that really prayer doesn't matter because God has already set the course of action in place in your life and you will have no effect on that and prayer will have no effect on that. I don't agree. I don't agree at all. But if you swing the pendulum the other way, you find a group of people referred to as the open theists. Open theists believe that that God can predict the future, but he does not know the specific future. Catch that. God can predict the future, but he does not know the specific future, meaning he's not positive how it's all going to turn out. Here's the problem with that. I don't agree with it either. The problem with open theism is that it robs God of his character and his nature. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Lord knows everything. For us to say that God can only predict the future robs him of who he is. It's heresy, and we have to be very careful of it. Well, somewhere between those two, we actually find what the Bible teaches. There are a group of people, Bible teachers, theologians, that would teach a concept called middle knowledge. And I totally agree with middle knowledge. Here's what middle knowledge teaches. And some of you are about to disagree with me. That's fine. You're free to be wrong. You're going to disagree with me. If you do, I, I just want to encourage you to grab hold of the chair in front of you and hold on and stay with me all the way through this. Don't walk out. I want you to see what middle knowledge does. Middle knowledge teaches... That God not only knows the future, but he knows every possible future. Now, I want you to let that soak in. It seems a little science fiction-y. God knows the future, but he also knows every possible future. And prayer determines the future. Now, really let that soak in. Prayer determines the future. Now, let me show you why I believe that. We're going to go to the Old Testament, book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. Moses has been up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord. God has been carving them with his own finger into the tablets that Moses would bring down and show to the children of Israel. He's been gone for a while. He and God have been spending some great time together. The Lord's been teaching him all that Moses needed to bring back to the people. Not only has he been carving the stones, but he's been teaching Moses And Moses has been gone for a while. The Hebrew people had a real problem with his absence. It was almost more than they could handle. Well, I could argue that it was more than they could handle. Moses was gone. Aaron was in charge. They needed a tangible leader that connected them to a tangible God. 
in the absence of a tangible leader, they could no longer hold on to the God that they had been following through all of the wilderness. So they said to Aaron, you got to help us out, Aaron. You've got to help us have someone to worship, have something to worship. You've got to do this for us. And Aaron did. He was a weak-willed leader. I want you to see what happens. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now isn't that an interesting statement? To indulge in revelry. That's kind of an umbrella statement that you can fill in a whole lot of blanks if you want to. Verse 7, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now I want you to follow the emotion of that passage. God is mad. He is steamed about what they're doing. And so is Moses. Moses is extremely upset. He will carry the tablets down there, see what they're doing, and those tablets will be broken as he looks at what they're doing. He is that appalled. But God takes the anger of Moses times a hundred and applies it to what he sees. Now look at what happens next. Verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God plans to kill them all. He is going to wipe them off the face of the earth with the exception of Moses. Moses is the only one that's going to live. God says, I'll go back to the drawing board. I will still make you into a great nation, but it will not be with these people. I'm going to kill every one of them. Then Moses does the most curious of things. But Moses, verse 11, sought favor of God, of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses prayed. He prayed. Now, don't read the next verse. I want you to hold on for just a second. Moses goes back and he talks to God and says, God, why, why should we set the Egyptians up to say all these horrible things about you? All they're going to do is bring accusation against you. They're going to say how horrible you are. Look, you killed all these people. They're not going to have all the facts. Why would you do that, God? Don't wipe them out. Don't destroy them. And God listened. Listen to what happens. Verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. You see what prayer does? You see how it works? 
Now, middle knowledge would teach that God said, I'm going to wipe them off of the face of the earth, and that's exactly what he intended to do. And then Moses prayed, and the other future came into play. That was a future where they would wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and all of them would die in the wilderness except a couple, and those would go into the promised land. But this was a different future. It came about because of Moses' prayer. It came about because he talked to God. That's middle knowledge. And folks, that is the illustration of James chapter 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous woman is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective because it determines the future. It helps God. It doesn't necessarily help God. It just brings it all into focus as God says, this could happen or this could happen. What are you going to do about it? prayer of righteous man is powerful and effective. But what you have to see is this. Take a look at this again, right up here on the screen. This is James chapter 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I want you to notice one more time, it does not say that prayer is powerful and effective. It says the prayer of a righteous man. It is all about the relationship. Without the relationship, the prayer does not matter. Without the relationship, the righteous relationship, the prayer isn't going to change anything. The prayer that God hears without the relationship and responds to is the prayer of salvation that begins the process of righteousness. It is all about this. If James chapter 5, verse 16 is going to work, those bold letters have to work. If prayer is going to work, it's going to come out of relationship. Once we understand that, why we're supposed to pray, and we can really get to the heart of it so that we discover the relationship, we begin to unlock what God really wants for us, which is an interpersonal relationship. Interpersonalism, at its base definition, simply means this, to know someone else. That's interpersonalism. To know someone else and to be known by them. That's an interpersonal relationship. That's what God wants with us. The New Testament is full of all kinds of different teaching that would describe Jesus as Savior. There's all kinds of teaching that show us making our way to heaven because of relationship with Him. Let me show you one. We'll go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. We'll start in verse 5. Paul writes this. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, here's what Paul's teaching. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Now, that takes into account all of the rest of the teaching of the book of Romans. So we might even be able to say it like this. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and are baptized into Christ, you will be saved. You have sealed the relationship through baptism. There's this teaching of salvation. God wants you to be saved, but for so many people, that's as far as they ever see the relationship going. It's salvation. It's a means to heaven. That's all I want from God. If that's all you want from God, you are selling yourself way too short. Because what God wants is an interpersonal relationship with you that has purpose and value and meaning, and it unlocks the power and effectiveness of James chapter 5.16's teaching on prayer. That happens as we grow deeper in our walk with him. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? That is one of the most important questions in all of the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, here's what you have to know. Interpersonalism, when you really discover it with God, unlocks the purpose for your life. Interpersonalism sets you on a brand new course. For Peter, when he received that blessing, he was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Go preach to the Jews, then preach to the Samaritans, and then preach to the Gentiles. Open up the kingdom of heaven for all of them. That's what those keys were about. And the same thing happens for us when we deal with that question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And we respond the way Peter did. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. We receive the same blessing, which is an interpersonal relationship with him that has purpose and meaning. And all of a sudden, it puts power in our praying. God starts to respond. Prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. The prayers of a righteous woman are powerful and effective. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Interpersonalism brings that about. It connects us in ways that we cannot be connected without it. Now, I would illustrate that to you this way. I have an interpersonal relationship with my wife. If you're married, you have an interpersonal relationship with your husband or your wife. Remember, it simply means to be known by someone else and to know someone else. It could be argued that the marriage relationship is the most interpersonal there is, the most intimate relationship there is. But I also have an interpersonal relationship with my three children. They are a part of my life. They know me and I am known to them and they're known to me and we have this connection. I have an interpersonal relationship with my friends, many of them sitting in this room right now where we are known to one another. That's interpersonalism. I have an interpersonal relationship with my father. Had one with my mother as well, but she's in heaven. I could say I still have an interpersonal relationship with her because eternal life begins here on this 
planet. So I have an interpersonal relationship with her as well. But right now, this, this tangible one is with my dad. It's interesting to me what that relationship provides because I'm now looking at it even for my kids. The interpersonal relationship that they have with me is the same as the interpersonal relationship I have with my father, which means this, I am positioned to inherit his blessing. And not only his blessing, but his possessions, as are my children. Sadly for them, that's not much. For my dad, as we talk about it at different times, some of the possessions that are are exciting to think about, not in his death and the inheritance, just things I've always loved. He has five Colt pistols that I have always loved. One of them is a bone-handled forty-five long Colt, first cowboy gun I ever laid my hands on. I have never shot it. He would never let me shoot it. As far as I know, he has never shot it. I have told him repeatedly that there will be a 21-gun salute at his funeral, and it will be in 45 Long Colt coming right out of that pistol. <laughs> then he has a set of, of four gold-plated Colt pistols that he bought back in the 1960s for 75 bucks apiece. I talked about those one time. Danny Brossman came down and said, hey, go tell your dad I'll double his money right now. <laughs> it was pretty good. Well, I, I'm set to inherit those pistols. And we've talked about it. My brother and I have talked about it. Interestingly enough, he doesn't care about revolvers. That's nothing that, that even interests him. He's a black powder guy of all things. So I've said, hey, Rick, here's the way it works. You take all the black powder and I'll take those Colts and it'll be a great thing. And because he's not very sharp, he's agreed to it. <laughs> so that's a cool thing. I'm set to inherit those things from my dad. I have access to his kingdom and I can look at these things that are a great blessing and I can say someday those are mine. I'll inherit that. The same thing is true for my children with our kingdom. I use the word loosely. Our kingdom and the same thing is true for us with our God. Go to the book of Titus with me. Titus chapter 3 verse 3. At one time We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might, listen, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You are a joint heir, the Bible would say in the book of Hebrews. You're a joint heir with Christ to the kingdom of God. Interpersonalism teaches that. We have access to all that the kingdom has, and if we want to access it right now, prayer is the means of being able to do that. Lord, I'm just trying to open up the kingdom. I want to address you as a son would his father, as a daughter would her father, and see how you respond. And God does. He does. Because that's how close the relationship is. You are his heir. Boy, that that helps me understand prayer a little bit better. I get to talk to him out of that relationship, the depth of that relationship. But for many people, that still leaves a huge question. I understand why I'm supposed to pray. I can even understand the relationship, but I don't know how. How in the world am I supposed to pray? Well, first and foremost, you're supposed to acknowledge that you don't know how. That's okay. 
And if you've gotten to that point, even verbalizing it between yourself and God is okay. Look at what the disciples did. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to do what you're doing. It is all right for us to ask this how question, and God is ready to respond to that as well. Let me take you to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For many people, that whole idea of boldly approaching the throne of grace is just so distant that they can't even begin to fathom it. Have you ever found yourself thinking, I can approach the throne of grace, but not with confidence? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, right here, the writer of Hebrews is saying you can because of Jesus. That goes back to that interpersonal relationship. You can approach the throne of God with confidence because of what Jesus has done for you. So as you walk up to the throne, as you walk up into the presence of God, it is all right for you, like the disciples, to say, teach us how to do this. Then what you will find, according to the writer of Hebrews, is a special grace with which you can do that. Listen to this last sentence again so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you are given to writing in your Bible, circle that word grace. And in the margin of your Bible, write the word prayer. There are many, many levels to grace. Way too often it is presented only as salvation. When grace is only presented as salvation, you are missing. You are missing so much. There are deep levels of grace that get uncovered in our life all the time. There's the the grace to present the gospel. There's the grace necessary to be able to teach it. There's grace to understand it. There is grace to be able to pray. The writer of Hebrews would say, when you're in a time of need, you'll find the grace you need to communicate things to God. It's always interesting to me to talk with people that have never prayed before in their life, but when they're in a time of need, they're praying. And they're talking about praying. Well, they've never prayed ever. Now all of a sudden they're praying. Shouldn't surprise me. It's exactly what the Bible says. That grace is poured out on them. And now all of a sudden they're able to communicate some things to God. So if you find yourself in need of answers for the how question, it begins with saying, Lord, I'm in a time of need. And then trusting that God will give you what you need. You see, the Bible can be trusted all the time. The Bible can be trusted for its very words. The Bible can be trusted for its meaning, and it should be. Way too often, we drift away from what the Bible teaches, and we lose the truth of it. You can trust the truth of the Bible. So if the Bible says that God will give you the grace that you need when you need it, you trust it. I'm one of those people that believes the Bible. I'm one of those people that believes that we can trust exactly what it teaches. If you're in that same category, would you say amen? In fact, why don't we just say it together? We're going to say, if the Bible says it, I can trust it. Ready? One, two, three. If the Bible says it, I can trust it. So if God says he'll give me the grace I need when I need it, I can trust it. And God does. So from there, we still have this how question. All right, I've got God's grace. I have his power. Now, how do I pray? I want to give you five things. If you're a note taker, write these down as we go through them. Now, I have all the scripture that will go up here with them. 
for the sake of time, we're not going to read each one of these passages. I encourage you to go home and look them up on your own because it will teach you how to pray. The first one is this. If you want to know how to pray, then learn how to pray in Jesus' name. You have to ask in Jesus' name. John chapter 14, verse 13 teaches that very thing. Whatever you ask for in his name will be given to you. When you're asking in Jesus' name, it's as if you're saying, I'm with him. He's your ticket into the throne room of God. Jesus is the way that you get there. So you're asking in his name. That's the interpersonalness of that relationship. When you're able to say to God, hey, I'm with Jesus, I'm right here with him, then God is listening because Jesus paid the price so that you could stand in the presence of God. So when you hear us praying on Sunday mornings, or you've heard it a number of other times, somebody saying, in Jesus' name, that's what they're saying. I'm talking to God through Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ. And then we put an amen at the end of that. Amen simply means so be it. It means that you are in agreement with the prayer that was just offered. So when you hear other people in in church even, when somebody prays and they say amen and other people respond amen, they're saying I'm in agreement. I'm in agreement with what I have asked in Jesus' name. Now that's going to cause us to take a, a bit of a closer look at how we ask like this. Number two, you have to ask out of obedience. This is a tough one. This is where some of you are going to want to check out of the message. Don't. Stay with me on this, because if you really want to experience the power and the effectiveness of prayer, this matters. If you are living in disobedience to the Word of God and the teachings of God, and you think that your prayers are not being answered, there's a reason. If you are not in obedience with Him, you can't come back to Him and say, Hey, would you bless me? Would you do this for me even though I'm not listening to what you're saying? Even though I'm not doing what you have said? We talked last week about people's propensity to read a passage of Scripture and believe that that applies to somebody else but not them. We all do that all the time. If you're living in disobedience and your prayers seem to be just hitting a brick wall, maybe you need to take a close look at your life. Is there something that needs to be changed? Are you not in obedience with God? Get into obedience with God and then pray. It's really that simple. Now, let me keep you from falling off of a cliff here, though. There are some people that believe that we have to get our life cleaned up before we can come to Christ in salvation. That is upside-down theology. I don't care how messed up you are. You come to Jesus Christ and then he'll clean you up. You don't have to get cleaned up in order to come to Christ. You come to Christ and then he'll do what only he can do. There are a lot of people that remain distant from him because they think they have to be obedient to him before they can come and receive grace. That's not true. The grace that saves is given to you no matter where you're at in life. And then God will give you the grace to take care of the rest of it. However, in this grace of prayer, you have to make sure that you are obedient, which then causes us to look at number three. We have to ask in faith. How strong is your faith? James would teach that when we ask something of the Lord, we are to believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, or a ship blown and tossed by the waves of the sea. It would actually go so far, James, what is to call us double-minded. So when you're praying in faith, you have to pray a certain course until such a time that that course gets changed. Let me illustrate that for you in just healing. If you're praying for healing to come into somebody's life, maybe even your own, You pray for healing until such a time that you know that healing will not happen. And you pray without ever questioning. 
and without ever doubting. You stay that course. You pray in faith. Because if you don't, the Bible would teach us that, that we shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. I don't care what you're praying for. You pray in faith. If you are being obedient to God and you're praying in Jesus' name, then you pray in faith and you expect that God will answer it. If God changes the course of your prayer, then you change with him. But until such a time that he changes the course, you pray single-mindedly. Pray in faith. That'll lead you to number four. You have to ask with the right motives. Now, this is where things get a little more complicated. When we're praying... Remember, it's an interpersonal relationship. You have to ask with the right motives. Now, let me illustrate that for you. If one of my children, any of the, the three, were to come up to me and ask me for 20 bucks, just to say, hey, can, can I have 20 bucks? What's my first question going to be? Why or what do you want it for? Now, if they were to say to me, well, Dad, I need 20 bucks because I have this friend that comes to school every day. He doesn't have or she doesn't have lunch with them. They can't afford to go buy the lunch at the school. They don't bring anything with them. I feel really bad, and I just want to be able to help them have lunch every day at school, and 20 bucks would help me do that. I'm probably going to be pretty generous. That's a great motive. But if they were to say to me, I have this group of friends that are all involved in meth, and they want me to get involved in it with them, and and 20 bucks will buy me my first taste... What do you think I'm going to do? They're not getting 20 bucks. Well, the same thing happens with God. We ask him sometimes in the right motives and God responds. And sometimes we ask with the wrong motives. We're looking at it solely for ourselves, and, and some of our motivation could be so far off the page that all God can do is look at it and say, I don't think so. And he does. He does. Which leads us then to number five. Ask according to his will. Now, this is, again, one of those times that we could fall off the cliff if we're not careful because when we ask according to God's will, a lot of times we'll put that in there so that it saves our heart, it protects our heart. If I ask according to his will and God says no, then I'm not going to be disappointed. Well, asking according to God's will simply says, God, I'm going to use whatever it is that you give to me to glorify you. So whatever your will is, I'm in line with that. I'm in agreement I can handle that. And when we ask according to his will and we are actually honestly telling him that we can handle the yes or the no, the no becomes a whole lot easier. It becomes a lot easier for us to say, okay, the Lord knows more than I do. Therefore, I didn't need to go all the way into this. It's all right that he didn't give me what I asked for. I want to ask a question of the mature Christians that are in this room. That means if you have walked with God for a number of years, I'm asking you this question. In hindsight now, as you look back over all your years with the Lord, can you see times that God said no to you? How many of you can see that? And how many of you now in hindsight can say, I am so glad he did? You see, when we're praying according to his will, we can look back and say, God knew me so well that he didn't give me what I wanted. He gave me what I needed. And I'm thrilled that he did that. Interpersonal growing relationship allows us to do that. A fellow named Rusty Russell tells this story. He and his wife went to the hospital. They were afraid that she was about to experience another miscarriage and a long line of miscarriages. They wanted a child desperately, and it just seemed like her body could not carry them to term, and it looked like it was happening again. So they went into the doctor's office. They ran a battery of tests, and then the doctor called the two of them into the office and said, well, I have bad news for you. The baby is dead. I'm sorry. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that is God's will. 
And then this doctor, this first time this had ever happened in all their miscarriages, the doctor said, can we pray with you? And he prayed a great prayer of understanding that they might understand God's will. Rusty's a a minister and his wife had been in the church all of her life, but this was a tough one. So this doctor prayed with them and all of a sudden some things began to make sense to him. And when they left, she, her name is Lisa, began to explain to Rusty a passage of scripture that she'd really been wrestling with. It's found in Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. It says, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. She was convinced that God was angry with them for some reason, and that's why they couldn't carry a baby to term. And and then all of a sudden she realized, but his favor lasts a lifetime. And, And this is what Lisa Russell figured out was that when we receive a no answer, it changes our perspective out of the temporal into the eternal. I can start focusing on eternity. Even though God didn't give me what I wanted right here and right now, I can look at eternity and it can change everything for me. In her particular situation, changing everything for her meant that she'd be able to hold her babies in heaven. And God's mercies were new every morning. Isn't that remarkable? Today may be a difficult day, but but tomorrow's a new day. Everything's okay. Rusty Russell would go on to share a quote from a fellow named Soren Kierkegaard. I don't often agree with what Kierkegaard had to say, but this is really good. God possesses all good gifts, and his bounty is greater than human understanding can grasp. This is our comfort, because God answers every prayer, for either he gives what we pray for, or something far better. It really is true. A lot of times all we see is the no, and we get hung up on the no, instead of realizing that because God knows us so well, that what he's really doing is giving us something far better. And eternity allows us to see that. I was going to stop the message right there, but I'm not. If you'll give me three minutes, I want to show you something that's just really cool. I've been exploring it all week long. Just take three minutes. This is going to be like a, a barrel race. And anybody that's ever been on a, a horse and, and chasing barrels knows what I'm talking about. When you turn the last barrel and you run into the gate, we're going to go that fast. But I'm going to show you something cool. Go with me to Genesis chapter 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, as you're reading that, in my Bible, two words in, it says, Adam lay. Different translations of the Bible have different words. David Bulware, do you have your Bible open? What does yours say? Adam knew. Yep, Adam knew. Now, that's, I asked David that because he reads from an antiquated version of the Bible. <laughs> old old beat-up version of the Bible. The New American Standard Version. The New King James and the King James Version also say the same thing. Adam knew. Now, if you were to circle that word in your Bible and call it out in the Hebrew language, that word is actually yada. That's the Hebrew word for it. Now, I called my, my Hebrew-speaking friend this past week and asked him about it, and he said, yep, that's the word. And, and together, we kind of explored our way through it a little bit. It's kind of a cool study. Jerry Seinfeld actually made the word yada very famous back in 1996 with an episode called the yada episode where they were talking about different things, and they would just use the word yada to skip over all of the details. And that's exactly what we tend to apply it with, yada, yada, yada. 
I might say something like this to Deanie. Well, Deanie, Katie and I went horseback riding yesterday, and yada, 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 I fell off my horse. Well, Deanie and I have enough of an interpersonal relationship that he would know that I'm riding an Arabian horse that maybe declared a holy war on me yesterday, and so he could fill in all of the different details of that. I didn't fall off my horse. And he could fill in all the details because of the relationship that we have with each other. That's what it means. Yada means to know. You really know somebody. So when Adam knew his wife, and we say it all the time as a euphemism for sex, Adam knew her biblically or Eve knew him biblically, well, that's not what it's about. It's about the depth of really knowing somebody, the intimate relationship. Let's go back to that. Husbands and wives are oftentimes said to have the most intimate of relationships. That's what this is talking about. Adam yachted his wife. Eve yachted Adam. They knew each other. We also know that there is a relationship more intimate than that between husband and wife. That's between a mother and her unborn child. That child is receiving everything that it needs to survive from their mother. Oxygen, food, water, everything they need to survive. So it's actually more intimate than even husband and wife. If you skip over to the book of Jeremiah with me, I'll show you one deeper. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Circle that word, knew. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Back up at the beginning. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Same word, I yachted you. I knew everything about you. God knew everything about you. That's the interpersonal nature of his relationship with us. He yachted us. And then in the book of Jeremiah, we see the other side of it. Verse 15 of chapter 22. Jeremiah 22, verse 15. He's speaking to the evil kings of Israel and Judah. God is. He said, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Now, if you circle the word know right there at the end of that passage and call it out in the margin of your Bible, you can write the word yada. Those are three times. There's one other in the book of Proverbs where the Hebrew word yada is used. Four different times. Now, three of them describe God's relationship with us. He knew us. Even before we were in the womb, he knew us. And now he's looking to see in Jeremiah 22 how well we know him. Josiah is the king that he's talking about. So many of those kings, all they wanted was wealth. All they wanted was prosperity and riches. Josiah wanted to honor God. He yachted him. I knew you. They were connected. My friends, that's what we're after a yada relationship with God where we are known by him and he is known by us and we are seeking to glorify him. And in the process, we discover prayer that is powerful and effective and God wants us to talk to him. I'll leave you with that. Why don't you stand and pray with me? In fact, Deanie, why don't you come up here and pray? And uh, Ray will offer an invitation in just a minute. Pray with me, please. Dear Father, as we come to you today, God, we are thankful that uh, we got to see what your word tells us about prayer. 
and that you want us to just talk to you like we talk to our family and our friends, God. And we are thankful that we can do that uh, because Jesus paid the price for the wrong things that we have done and the traps that we have fallen into in life. And that we can approach you because of what he has done for us. We're so thankful for that. So, God, this week as we um, strive to communicate with you better, bring these things to our mind that we have learned. And uh, we just want you to know we love you. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.